Welcome to another inspirational teaching by Pastor Mike Foreman, Senior Pastor of the First Baptist Church of Level Plains. For more information about Pastor Mike and the church, please visit our website at www.fbclp.life. Let's join Pastor Mike now as he shares from God's Word. Good to see you this morning. We are going to uh, continue looking at the parables today. I've been going through parables. This is week seven as we looked at the parables together. And it's uh, good to uh, be able to... I told Marina last night before we went to bed, I said, I really have enjoyed this series of messages because it's really challenged me to uh, begin to look at the parables afresh and anew and to really just dig deep into what they mean. Because I've been telling you every week, the parables have one foundational meaning that runs throughout. Uh, you know, even though we may have many applications of parable, uh, when we look at a parable like we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, when you look at that parable, you find that, you know, there's many facets ways we can in, apply that. That is, we, you know, love our neighbor as ourself, and there's many ways we can do that. And yet the, the main running theme throughout that parable is not just that uh, we as Christians are good neighbors to one another. That's not the running theme uh, throughout that parable, but we found out that it's really a, a work of salvation, right? It's about talking about this man that Jesus is confronting. He never loved his neighbor as himself because he was void of the gospel, that is, he wasn't saved. It's saved people who live in love. Amen. It's saved people who will love their neighbor as their self. It's what we're called to do as followers of Christ. And so as we look at the parables, I want to remind you again today that as we look at this parable, that there's one theme that runs through the parable, one theological truth that Jesus is giving us. Even though there may be many applications of that, there's one that runs through. And so every parable is that way. And as we begin to look at our parable today, it's entitled The Rich Man and Lazarus in many Bibles. And as we begin to look at the parable, I have to just sort of uh, put a disclaimer uh, out there or just a, a warning before we launch in that this parable is not a pleasant parable. This is not one of those parables that you read and you go, man, that was just beautiful. That's just a great story. As a matter of fact, this parable talks a great deal about a place that many modern preachers avoid talking about, and that's a place called hell. And although we don't like that subject, I want you to understand that Jesus has a point in which he is making as he talks about hell throughout this parable about the rich man and Lazarus. The one thing I do want you to understand, though, that hell is a real place where there is real torment and where there is real separation from God and it is for eternity. And anybody who desires or anybody who longs or anybody who is delightful about anybody who goes to hell really does not understand the magnitude of that place. Because I don't see how anybody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved by his saving power and his mercy could ever desire or wish that somebody else would go there. Because we're the ones that ought to know all about it. Amen? And so we need to be very careful as followers of Christ that we understand the magnitude of hell. But that ought to bring us to an urgency of the gospel. That is, we ought to be concerned enough to tell others that they don't have to go there. Amen? That Jesus died for their sin. That he bore their punishment in his own flesh on the cross. That yes, he did die, but praise God on the third day, he burst forth alive out of the grave. And he did that in order that they could be right with God. Amen? That they don't have to live in sin and guilt anymore. 
But too many Christians are, well, if they just die and go to hell, well, I guess they deserved it, you know. Well, sure, anybody who rejects Jesus Christ will reap the reward of that denial, that lack of faith, but we should never be happy or desirous about it. And so as we think about this parable today, we get this magnitude of the weight of what hell is really like. Now, now let me also tell you that we want to be careful that we don't base all our theological understanding of hell on this one passage. Because Jesus is talking about hell here, but he talked about hell in a lot of different places, okay? He talked about that eternal punishment in, in various ways. So, for example, when we get to the parable, we're going to look at that the rich man looks across this great chasm and he sees Abraham and he sees this man named Lazarus and they have this conversation back and forth. Well, if you read all the rest of the truth that Jesus talks about hell, you realize that this is a parable that Jesus is giving a story in this parable and he's helping us to see some things that, that are taking place after this man and Lazarus die. But he's not basing full theology about hell on that because we learn from elsewhere that Jesus said that people who go to hell are cast into outer darkness. That is, there is no anybody, there is no one else. People talk about, well, I'll just go to hell being my friends. Listen, there are no friends. Amen. There's no one you're going to hang out with. Amen. There's no clubs or bars to go drink in in hell. There, there's not. And it's void of any drink. Amen. And so when we begin to think about that subject matter, when we begin to look at the parable, don't base all your theology on one parable that Jesus tells about everlasting life, okay? So I don't want you to do that because there are more distinctives about this place of eternal punishment that are told elsewhere that help us to understand that Jesus is giving a parable. He's trying to prove a point. He's allowing this man, this rich man, to see across this great gulf, this great chasm, and to see Abraham and Lazarus in this story so that he can prove a point. Now, Let's talk about the purpose of the parable. Why did Jesus give this parable? Well, really, in order to understand why Jesus gave the parable, you have to sort of backtrack and you have to begin to look, first of all, at Luke 16, verse 1. In Luke 16, verse 1, Jesus is giving another parable. Jesus gives a parable of what we call the unjust steward. And, and basically, here's how the story goes. There's a steward who's called into question by his master for mishandling funds. And so the steward is going to be fired. So the, the master says, you're going to be fired. And so what the steward does, he, he has this shrewd plan. He has this plan that what he's going to do is call in all the people that owe his master money, and he's going to change their bill to a lesser amount. Now, the reason why he's doing that is because he has an ulterior motive. You know, if I scratch your back, you scratch my back, right? So he's saying, what we're going to do is we're going to erase this guy's bill from 100 fold to 50%. It's all you owe me. One guy owed so much, he moved it to 80%. And so he did all of that in order that when he got fired from one man's house, hopefully one of those guys would pick him up in employment. Amen. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus likens that to how do we use money? Are we shrewd as believers in Jesus Christ with our money? That is, do we see money as something that is a blessing from God to live our lives, but, but more importantly, to use it as a tool for the resources of the kingdom of God. So are we shrewd in doing that? And Jesus said that most Christians are not. And so he talks about money. 
Now, here's the interesting thing about it. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Jesus, we're told, says this, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one. He said, and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. That is sort of the wrap-up of that parable. Jesus said, you cannot hold God in one hand and money in the other hand and count them as equal. You cannot do that. You will either love God and hate money. And by the way, when you hate money, it doesn't mean that, that you are taking money and throwing it in the garbage can. But what that means is it has the value for the kingdom. It has value to get you through your daily substance because it's a blessing of God. But listen, it's used for the kingdom of God. It's not something to be grasped and held on to and, and to stock it up like Ebenezer Scrooge stocked it up. Amen? It's, it's supposed to be used for the kingdom of God. But you cannot look at money and God as equal and love them both the same because you will either love the money more or you'll love God more. And so Jesus tells this parable. And obviously this parable must have been told in the public square because as he's talking to his disciples in verse 1, we're told a whole different story in verse 14. Look at verse 14. I'm getting to the point of the purpose. Hang in there with me. Now the Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money. (laughs) Now you can imagine they heard this first parable. They did not like Jesus very much because their whole idea was and their whole take is that we're going to get as wealthy as we can get. And we're going to do that on the backs of people and their tithing. That's what we're going to do. They were like modern day wealth, health, prosperity preachers. Amen. They wanted to get, they wanted to get rich by making people feel guilty about their faith. And so here they are trying to get rich. Says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. That word literally means they stuck their nose up at him. That is they scoffed at Jesus. When Jesus told that, about that parable and about how they ought to treat money, they were like, huh, right. They did not like it one bit. Why? Because they loved money, okay? You get it? They were the opposite of verse 13. They did not love God. They loved their money. But yet they would say they loved God. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? And so what Jesus does is he helps us to understand how false they really are, how their theology really is out of whack, how they, even though are religious teachers who wear all the fancy outfits, who have phylactery boxes on their foreheads with scripture contained inside, they wear long tassels on their robes in order to represent the commandments, and they really, you know, broaden those to look really nice. So although these guys were that way, Jesus tells them, beginning in verse 15, that even though they love money, verse 15, he tells them four things in rebuke. He says in verse 15 that he reminded them that even though they thought they were religious and even though they thought they were all right, that everything that they did really was an abomination before God because why? God knew their heart. Listen, if you don't hear anything else I say today, will you understand God knows your heart today. He knows where you're at with him. You can't fool God, amen? And the, the Pharisees, they were fooling the people. They looked religious, they looked good, but they weren't fooling God. Matter of fact, God says, the very things you do are an abomination to me. In other words, I have nothing to do with it. It is disgusting, and I want nothing to do with it. So not only that, verse 15, verse 16, 
He reminds them that the preaching of the kingdom has come and it's no longer by law that people are to live, but we're living under the kingdom. And he says, since John, that is John the Baptist came, we've been preaching what? The kingdom of God is at hand, right? So Jesus has been preaching the kingdom. He's not coming to preach the law. He came to fulfill the law. And his point that he's trying to make to them is, if you live by the letter of the law, you will be judged by the letter of the law. And here's the reality. There's not a single person in this room who can live according to the letter of the law. Amen? That is, can you love God perfectly? Can you do that? There's no way. It's impossible. It's impossible that we love God perfectly. It's impossible that we, you know, keep all the commandments in a perfect fashion. We cannot do that. And so he is writing and he's saying to them that they are missing the point. The kingdom of God is preaching. He said, and everyone is pressing into it. In other words, he's saying, there's people getting saved. There's people coming into the kingdom. Now, they didn't like that at one bit. That's why they hated Jesus. Then verse 17, notice he says that he reminds them of the sufficiency of the scripture, but he also, again, reminds them of judgment to come by the law. He says, and it is easier for the heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. In other words, he's saying, if you are going to, again, live by this letter of the law, you're going to die by it. Why? Because the law is not going to fail in the sense that if you live by it, you're going to be judged by it. It's not that you live, that you, you claim everybody else lived by it. You do what you want to do. And at the end, God goes, well, hey, you did the best you could. No, God said, if you want to live by a legalistic law, then you live by that, my friend. And how well are you going to be able to do that? How well are you going to be able to stand up before God when you stand for him? He goes, well, you know what? You know, you did covet this one time. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, God was like, no, too bad. I said, thou shalt not covet. You coveted. And so you're going to hell. You're not going to make it. That's what he's saying, right? James said it this way. James would remind us in the New Testament. Uh, later on, he would remind us that he said, if you are following the law, if you break one of the least of commandments, you have broken them all. So don't try to live by a legalistic law. So Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, and I'm getting to the point. You just hang in with me, okay? There's one other thing that he says to them in verse 18. He talks about the Scripture, and he talks about the fact that they don't know how to interpret the law that they're following. That is, when God says that a man should not divorce his wife, here's what the Pharisees said. The Pharisees said, well, you know, what that means is that, you know, if your wife burns the eggs and you're dissatisfied with her, it's okay to divorce her. As long as you give her a certificate of divorce, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll legitimize that. And so here's what was happening. There was rampant divorce going on. Why was there rampant divorce going on? Because they did not understand the law. They didn't understand the intent and the heart of which God was giving the law, that they shouldn't divorce. Matter of fact, God would tell the, the people in his time, or excuse me, in the, in the time of Malachi, he hates divorce. Amen? And so what he would say to them is, Jesus is saying, listen, God, you don't even know how to interpret the law. You're saying you want to follow the law, but you don't even know how to interpret it because you're destroying the law by your infraction and you're redefining it rather than holding up to the letter or more importantly to the purpose of the law. So you're missing the intent. And so Jesus is confronting them because they scoffed at him because he talked about money. Now, you have to understand this is the purpose of why Jesus gives the parable. Jesus is giving this parable to help these guys to understand that the word of God is sufficient for salvation, but they don't know how to deal with it. Amen? As a matter of fact, one time, you remember at one time he said to the Pharisees, he says, you look in the scriptures to find salvation, but you don't find it. Why is that? Because when they looked at the Bible, listen, when they looked at the Bible, they had their own interpretive glasses on. 
They weren't willing to listen to the truth that the Bible speaks of itself. And by the way, can I just tell you this morning, if you'll read the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself, it is sufficient to bring men and women, boys and girls, to salvation. Amen? But the problem is people don't want to listen to the Bible and let it speak for itself. They want to reinterpret it. They want to make it say what they want it to say to fit their own religiosity. Amen? And that's what's happened here. What's happened is the Pharisees have made it say what they wanted to say. And so Jesus has to confront them on the urgency of them listening to the Scripture. Because here's the problem. The problem is they were lost. The problem is they were the ones who were bound for hell. The problem is they thought they were right with God. They thought they had it all together. And they were the ones that Jesus is going to talk about in the parable. So look at the parable. We got the, par- we got the purpose then. The purpose of the parable is in order that they would understand the fate if they refuse to listen to the word and live in self-righteousness. You say, how do you get that out of that parable? Well, you just read the parable and you'll find it. And notice what he says, beginning in verse 19. We'll read the parable first and I'll talk about it. He says, there was a certain man, he was rich, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and they licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Boy, that just sounds so abrupt, doesn't it? And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are in torment. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one who raises from the dead. Think about that. So the parable breaks down into three scenes. So first of all, you're introduced to the characters of the story. So look, look at the characters here. It says there was a rich man. Jesus doesn't give him a name. Like most classic parables, Jesus says there's a rich man. Now, what we learn about this rich man is that he is extravagantly rich. I mean, he is extremely rich. I mean, he is wealthy. He is wearing, look what it says. He is wearing purple clothing. Now that was, the purple was the cloth of rich people, but it was the cloth of kings. People couldn't afford it. It would be like me trying to go to the store. And I wrote this name down because I'd never heard of these before, but a Stuart Hughes diamond edition suit. That's what it would be like me trying to go and to buy. By the way, you know how much that suit cost? $859,000. Who in the heck would buy a suit that much money? This guy, this guy. Why? Because listen, for him, the wearing of the purple was prestige. 
We get the idea from the, the text, as you listen to the text, as Jesus is talking, that this guy enjoyed wearing the fancy clothes. And that's what it was all about for him. So this rich guy is wearing fancy And then it says he fared sumptuously every day. You know what that means? That means he ate good meals every day. I mean, he, we're not talking about Sunday afternoon at grandma's house eating fried chicken. Amen? We're not talking about that. We're talking about having the finest of meals prepared for him every single day day of his life, even on the Sabbath when they shouldn't be working. You get the point? This guy had no regard for God. He had no regard in his heart for anybody else but himself. He is the epitome of the Pharisee. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And so that's the rich guy. But what about Lazarus? Now, many want to say, well, you know, Jesus gave a name to a guy. This has got to be a true story. No, it, it remains in parable form. We don't see anything that moves us out of, out of parable form into a narrative where it would be a true story. But actually, Jesus uses this name for the purpose of helping us to understand what that name means. The name of Lazarus really is defined as God who helps me. And so it is God who helped Lazarus. So I want you to think about this for a minute that Lazarus is named and, it, and, and Jesus is trying to give some personification to trying to help make a shocking impact on the Pharisees as they listen, but they don't. So he talks about this beggar. Look at this guy's helpless estate. I mean, just look at what the Bible says about him. Bless his heart. He says there's a certain beggar named Lazarus. First of all, he's full of sores. We don't know what the sores are, but it could be the fact that he is bedridden they may have bed sores. We're not really told that. He says, who is laid at the gate. So we obviously are told that he's laid at the gate. So that may speak to some paralysis in his life. So not only has he got sores, he may be paralyzed. And then listen to this, verse 21. And he's hungry. Amen. He said, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He just wanted some food. And by the way, the gate that he's laid at is the gate of the rich man. And so the rich man is going to drive in and out, going to go in and out of his gate, and he's going to see Lazarus there. Well, not really see Lazarus there. You know my point? I mean, Lazarus is there, and he should have noticed that he was there, but he really didn't see him there. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? And that's important because we're going to get back to that in just a moment. And so Lazarus, it even gets worse. And Lazarus is so helpless for himself. This is moreover, verse 21, the dogs came and they licked his sores. This guy is in bad shape. This is somebody who needs somebody to pay attention to him. And he needs somebody to love on him. And he's thrown out at the gate. And by the way, that word to be laid at the gate means to be cast aside or to cast by. And so whoever brought him just laid him at the gate and took off. They just left, left him there. And so he's laying at the gate of this rich guy. The rich guy is coming in and out, not paying any attention. As a matter of fact, the Bible just says all he wanted was some crumbs to fall off the table and be fed by those crumbs. Not that he was sitting at the table underneath and was going to get them. But what he desired was that somebody would bring him something to eat, even if it was the crumbs that fell off the table. And by the way, that's a reference to rich people back then did not, you know, everybody ate with hands. And so they would often use sometimes crust of bread to sort of wipe food off their hands. And then they would throw it on the floor for the dogs to eat. That's what he wanted to have. That's all Lazarus wanted. Well, what's the fate of these guys? The fate of these guys is that they die. Can I just be honest with you this morning? I don't care how much money you got. 
death's going to find you. I don't care how poor you are, death is going to find you. Unless Jesus comes first, amen? That's what I'm hoping. I want to go in the rapture. I don't, want to, I don't want to die. That'd be a blessing, wouldn't it? And so notice the text says that they both died. But look at the fate of both of them because it's different. And so it was in verse 22 that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades. So here's the fate. The one guy goes to Abraham's bosom. He, here's a, a reference to he's going to a place of heaven. He's going to a place of bliss. He's going to a place where the redeemed righteous go. Now we have to put this out here because we have to understand this truth that in a moment as Abraham is talking and he's going to reference the fact that, that the rich man had all he could have while he was on earth and, and Lazarus had nothing. Listen, that has nothing to do with where they're at. The only thing that has to do with where they're at is the fact of faith and belief and trust. Amen? The only thing that has to do with where they're at is that the rich man, by the way that he lived, demonstrated to us that he did not understand loving God and loving people because, listen, the love of God was not in him. Lazarus is where he is because somewhere, even though we're not told in the narrative, but we know by the whole of Scripture that he had faith, that he believed and he trusted. Even in his lowliest state, he believed, he believed on God. Amen? That's the only way that you're going to heaven. Amen? It's not because you got good stuff or bad stuff or whatever. It's not that God looks on the poor and says, well, all the poor just come with me. All the rich are going to go to hell. That's not what he's doing there. It's all based on faith. And by this man's life, and so the focus, listen, the focus of the parable is not Lazarus. The focus of the parable is the rich guy. Why? Because it's the Pharisee. And it's to help us to understand that the urgency is to hear the scripture, believe the scripture, and repent. Otherwise, you're going to end up like this rich guy. Okay? So now notice the text. And so the Bible says that the beggar dies and goes to Abraham's bosom. And by the way, which is a, a phrase that was often used of going again to heaven or to a paradise. And in verse 23, and being in torments, this other guy goes to Hades, the place of the wicked dead. Every time Hades is mentioned, is mentioned in torment. It's mentioned in judgment. And, and it says that when he went to Hades, there's moves us into what I would call scene three. And that is this conversation that he's having back and forth with Abraham. So notice this conversation that this rich man and Abraham have together. And he lifted up his eyes. Notice verse 23. And he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham. Now that's important because this helps us to understand this guy was Jewish. It helps us understand that he obviously believed that Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. So somewhere along the line, he had some religion in him. Amen? The problem is his religion didn't save him. All right? So here's a guy who has some religion. So he's calling out the father Abraham. Certainly, Father Abraham would do something for a fellow Jew. And by the way, when you begin to think about the story taking a twist and a turn, all the Pharisees listening in would go, wait a minute, that, that's not how it's supposed to go. You know, the rich people go to heaven because that's a sign of God's blessing. The poor people, they're the ones that go to heaven because that's a sign of God's dissatisfaction with them. So they would look at them like the, the, the disciples looked at somebody one time and said, uh, Lord, who sinned? You know, who sinned? Because he's got a, a malady, because he's got a deformity. Lord, who sinned? That's the way they looked at it. And so they would look at this story and go, hey, Jesus, you're, you're not getting it right. The rich guy's supposed to be in heaven. That's God's blessing. The poor guy deserves to be in hell. 
Obviously, God didn't love him. God didn't want him. And boy, isn't that how we sometimes think today? We sometimes let that permeate our thinking, right? Something bad happens, well, God must not like me. It had nothing to do with that, amen? Life is life. Can I just be honest with you? Life is life. And sometimes you're going to be elevated in life. Sometimes you're going to be pushed down in life. Life is life. And so he says that the man has this conversation with Abraham. So let's move on, verse 24. I've got to move quickly. I'm running out of time. He says, then he cried and he said, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on these flames. So notice the first thing that he asked. Send, please send Lazarus. He feels like he's still a serv- uh, subser- uh, Lazarus subservient to him. Send him to go serve me. Have him go dip his fingers in water and touch my tongue. It's like he still is bossing him around. You know what I'm saying? And he says, let him go and dip it because I'm in torment. Listen, all this guy knew is that where he was was not a pleasantry. Hell is not pleasant, friends. Listen to me. He says that there he was in torment because of these flames. He just wanted, listen, he just wanted a drop of water. Can you imagine? That's some severe thirst, isn't it? And he just thought, well, if a little drop of water would come, it would satisfy me. No, it, it wouldn't satisfy. And if it satisfied for a second, that's about as long as it would satisfy. And so he's crying out, give me something to drink. And Abraham has to bring reality to him and says, verse 25, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus his evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. It's, it's not that because he was rich. It's not because even that he ignored Lazarus and didn't tend to Lazarus. It's because he lacked faith and trust in God. And it was demonstrated by the fact that he ignored Lazarus and did nothing for that man who sat at his gate Day by day, day by day, day by day, and did nothing for him. And so Abraham says, the shoe's on the other foot. Doesn't feel good, does it? But you know, the reality of what he's saying is, you reaped and now you're sowing. Or you reap what you sow. Amen? You, you didn't care about the Lord. You didn't care about me. You didn't care about the scriptures. You didn't care about Lazarus. You didn't care about anything but yourself. Your purple clothes and your delicacies every day. You know, your chef bringing this great food. And you you were well known in the community, in the town. But now you're dead. You're buried and you're in torment. And now all of a sudden, you want something to be done. It's too late. Your place is fixed. You can't move from one to the other. There is this great chasm that exists. Notice how he says it. He says, he says to him, besides this, verse 26, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. That is that it's permanent. There is no changing it. There is no moving the lines. It's fixed and it's wide and it's expanse. And there is no way that you can go from one side to the other. It's impossible for it to happen. And he says... To him that those who are on your side can't come here and this side cannot come there. It is fixed. Your eternity is fixed. Do you hear me? Your eternity is fixed. When you die, it's over. There is no, if I'm prayed through, if I'm prayed enough, if I'm in purgatory, if I'm in holding or whatever we may call that, there is no soul sleep. Once you are dead, it is over. 
You are fixed. You'll either go to heaven or you go to hell. There is no other place. There is no other place. Amen? Jesus is through the parable telling us. And so he goes on and he says, and besides this, there's that fixed gulf. But then he says in verse 27, send somebody to my father's house. And notice what he says. He says, I beg you therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that they may testify that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Abraham, here's what you need to do. Just send Lazarus back from the dead and let him go visit my brothers and tell my brothers that hell's real and you want to skip it. Can I just tell you the most evangelistic people are the people in hell. And so he says, send him back. Now here's the problem with that. The problem with that is they're not going to believe anyway. They're not going to believe anyway. Amen? I mean, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and they didn't believe it. He raised a real Lazarus from the dead. And how did they respond? They wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus too. It didn't change their hearts. Listen, that's what men are looking for. Men are saying all the time, give me, give me a reason to believe God. Give me a reason to trust God. And I say, look at the Bible. Read the scriptures. There's all the reason you need. No, no, I want a sign. Show me. Show me God's alive. Show me God's real. Send someone back from the dead to talk to me. Listen, not going to happen. Not going to happen. You see how we're drawing down to the sufficiency of scripture for salvation. There is no other place we need to go. And so as he's drawing this down in the parable, he says, send somebody. And he says to them the first time, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them go to the Bible. Let them go to the scriptures. And by the way, that's the whole of the Old Testament he's referring to. Let them go to the Old Testament, open it up, and you will find that it testifies to a Savior named Jesus who will die. Let them have faith in what God has promised. But that's not what they want. <laughs> no, they want evidence. They want proof. Do you know what this man's saying? Do you realize what he's ultimately saying to God in this? He's saying, God, if you would have just gave me a better sign, I could have been saved. Now it's God's fault. God, if you had just sent somebody from the dead to talk to me and tell me how bad hell was, I would have missed it. Or God, if you had sent somebody back from heaven to tell me how grand heaven is, I would have missed it. Hell, listen, the reality is nobody goes for the signs. If you give them one, they want more. Jesus did all the miracles in front of people. He did them publicly. And they still said, give us a sign. Come on, I just raised the dead. I just healed the sick. I opened the eyes of the blind. And you still don't believe. Why? Because they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe the scriptures. And you and I can beat our heads against the wall all day long to try to prove and have arguments with all these people in the world. But listen, we ultimately got to point them back to the Bible. We're never going to be able to give them a sign that's going to be enough to prove it. Listen, it ought to be that the sun rises. We look and see the sun comes up and down every day. And we ought to be thankful. We ought to say, that's a God who does that. But that sign does not do anything for anybody that's lost. They just worship it. Right? They just complain about its heat. That doesn't point them to God. 
And so he says, if you just send somebody, he said, nope, let them to believe the word. Well, no, 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 that's not sufficient. Look at verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Obviously, everybody in town knew who Lazarus was. Everybody must have known how that old beggar finally died. I mean, his family must have known. Well, certainly probably going to his house in and out. They saw him like a bump on a log sitting out there in front of the gate. And, and so they knew who Lazarus was. If they would send back this guy named Lazarus, then everybody in town must have known he was this beggar who died. Then they'll believe. Again, that wasn't sufficient. Even in the word of God, it wasn't sufficient when you look at people who are not believing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, you know, they plotted with the Romans, right? As soon as they heard Jesus' grave was empty, they went and they plotted against the, the people by saying, hey, we're going to pay these Roman soldiers off to lie. Say so they came and they stole the body. Why? Because it wasn't sufficient to draw them to God. It wasn't sufficient to draw them to faith. Why? Because they needed the word of God. And he says it in verse 31. Here it is. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one raised from the dead. Wow. Wow. Not going to happen. I like what John MacArthur says about that little phrase, do not listen. He said the Greek present tense of do not listen implies that the brothers knew Moses and the prophets but chose not to believe them. Jesus, he says, it will be remembered, addresses this parable to Pharisees who also knew the law and the prophets. See, here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. They wanted to be rich. They wanted to put laws on the backs of men and women. They wanted to say they were self-righteous because they tithed and they fasted and they did all these great religious works but all along, even though they were the experts in the Old Testament, even though they were supposed to know the Bible, they did not follow it. See, the problem in the Southern Baptist Convention is not that we don't believe in the Bible. We believe in the Bible. We believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. We believe the Bible is true from, from the index to the maps. Amen? We believe it's true, all of it. The problem is, do we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Do we really believe, Ed, that it works? Do we really believe that it's what is to be lived out? Do we really believe that we ought not just read the word, but that the word ought to read us? Do we really believe that? See, here's the problem. The principle of the parable is this. No man will be able to ignore the truth of Scripture and be without an excuse, no matter how religious he may be. You are not going to be standing before God and say, God, but I was good. God, I was a Baptist. God, I was this. I was that. No, God's going to say, what did you do with my son? My word testified unto him, and you threw it in a garbage can. You ignored it. See, we can be religious without the word. The point in verse 31 again. Listen to him again. Listen one more time. Verse 31. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophet, if they do not listen to what they already have, neither will they be persuaded, though one raised from the dead. Here's how Jesus said it in John 12, and I'll move to application. 
In John 12, verses 46 to 48, here's what Jesus said. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words, listen to what he says, hears my word and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words, he says, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. See, the Bible does remind us, ladies and gentlemen, that the Bible is sufficient for salvation. And you and I need not base religion, works, baptism, or anything that we do for salvation. But do we believe the word? Do we believe the word? Well, the specific word I'm talking about. Do we believe what the Bible says that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the lie, that no one comes to the Father but by him? Do we really believe that truth? Do we really believe what the Bible and the scriptures testify that he is indeed 100% God, 100% man, that he is the God-man who came and to die for you and for me in order that we would not go to hell? So don't rely on your self-righteousness and your good works. Second of all, realize, realize the word is for our salvation. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Christians, can I just talk to you for a moment? We need to use the word in our witnessing. Amen. We can invite people to church and we ought to do that. We, we ought to talk to people about Jesus and we, we should be doing that. But you cannot leave out the word. Amen. The word is crucial. No, the word is necessary in our witnessing. If we leave out the word, we leave out a good witness. Because it is the word of God that is the power of God unto salvation for all people. I'll leave you with one commentator says, he said, knowledge of that fear of hell should motivate us believers as well. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, we persuade men. Is hell real? Yes. And people are going to go there because of a lack of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because we've not made the word sufficient. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening today. And remember, you can find more information about Pastor Mike and the church at our website, www.fbclp.life.